This episode is brought to you by Patreon sponsor Alan Smith. If you'd like to find out how you can support the podcast through a small monthly donation, please visit schooloflast.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks, Alan. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by schooloflaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here. We've got a fun episode today. This is one of those after-school specials, uh, comedy campfires, whatever you want to call it, where I have my students, after one of the classes, sit around and just pick my brain, ask me some questions that you might be wondering, too, since a lot of these students are brand new to comedy, and I know a lot of listeners are as well. Uh, this might be a good time for you to get a lot of your questions answered instead of emailing your questions in. If you do want to email questions in, feel free to do that anytime, schooloflaughs at gmail.com, and I'll make sure I get the answer back to you as quickly as possible. Thanks again to Alan Smith for sponsoring us through Patreon. Patreon is a, a way that you can contribute each month to help support the podcast, helps offset some of the fees and some of the time associated with producing the show, and it makes you part of a cool thing called Club 52 which I'll talk about more at the end of the podcast. But we've had a lot of fun engaging each other with some challenges every week. And we do a monthly Google Hangout where we get to look at each other face-to-face and put forth challenges for the forthcoming month that we all have to be held accountable for. So lots of fun stuff on that. Lots of great questions in this podcast from my current students. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of this too. Uh, you can check the show notes to go back over the questions and look for some links out to some of the uh, things we mentioned in the podcast. But let's go ahead right now and get into the after school special. Welcome back to School Last Podcast. This is an after class, after school special, I like to call it, or a comedy campfire where instead of a campfire, we've got a microphone and a H4N. And we've got some uh, questions from some students that just took the third of three writing classes here. Dustin, it looks like you're pretty close to the microphone. Would you like to lead us off with a question? Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself really quick. Too. Okay. Uh, Dustin Dunbar. I'm an accountant. I'm from Mississippi. And the reason I'm an accountant is because I'm from Mississippi. We are good with numbers. We're not so good with reading. <laughs> so um, I wanted to take the class and um, just really excited about it. But one of the questions that I, that I had, what would be a good way to um, – to know if you need to continue to pursue it or not. So know when to throw in the towel? Right. When, when should I keep pursuing this and investing time and resources, or when should I just say enough's enough? Correct. All right. So the few answers that I have that I give everybody is, one, I would not consider myself uh, successful as a beginner or horrible until I've been on stage 100 times. The, the key is to learn from every show. So if you're doing three open mics a week, say you got a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you can start out with an idea on Monday, on Monday, and you'll have two other crowds, Tuesday and Wednesday, to help you figure out if that premise was solid. So the first two crowds may not, your target for that punchline might not even be in that crowd. Like you might be performing for really young people, really old people, really drunk people, whatever. And But the barometer of those three should kind of weigh it out. So if, if it works one time out of three, you've got something. And if you've recorded your other two times where it didn't work, you could probably go back and play it and figure out, oh, that's why it didn't work. I said this the wrong way, or I was too wordy at the beginning, or I had too many statements in the premise, and they couldn't even figure out where the punchline was. So, you know, get it to where you've got it. 
solid. And then if it works three out of five times, you're really onto something. And when you want to get that joke to where it works 100%. So there's always little tweaks you can do. And then also knowing after 100 shows, you'll know how to look at an audience as they're coming in and pick the material that's going to work best for that audience. I mean, you might really want to work on a five-minute set that's going to be for some other gig, but it's none of that's going to work for this group in front of you tonight. So 100 gives you exposure to all the things that can go wrong. In that 100 shows, probably the microphone's going to fall out, of the cord's going to fall off the mic, you have to deal with that, or somebody's going to stand up in the middle of your joke and start yelling at you, and you have to know how to deal with that. So the momentum is the big thing, and the 100 times gives you enough trial and error to kind of get a barometer for it. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is after 100 shows, if no one ever comes up to you afterwards and says, hey, where are you going to be next? Or, hey, you must be new. I, I really liked your stuff. If you never get a single compliment, it might be a sign. I mean, if, if, you, if you weigh that plus listening back and nobody's laughing, then it, it may not be for you. But it takes a while to kind of get the, the feel for it and the awkwardness out, even to get comfortable and slow down enough to where they can understand your setup and your punchline. That can take some people months. So you have to give yourself enough chances to to see. Okay, great. And the other thing I would just say at the end of that is trust your instinct after a hundred too. If you if you feel you've got momentum and you and you see proof of it, and you hear proof of it in your recordings, then yeah, keep going. I guess the other thing on top of that is to have at least some expectation when you first start, so that you can find out if you met that expectation or you fell short of it. So your first expectation after a hundred shows might just be, can I? develop five or seven minutes worth of material after doing 100 shows? Can I get at least five or six laughs per minute after 100 shows? After 100 shows, have I been invited to at least two new open mics from somebody who liked my set? Just set some criteria so you can weigh that and and see if you achieved it. Andrew Varner, musician, Nashville songwriter. I hate country music. Uh, (laughs) Okay, I have a question. I don't think I necessarily want the professional answer, maybe the private personal answer. Okay. No, everybody else, stop listening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is on a day you got a gig and something happened or maybe nothing happened and you don't feel funny. What do you do? Yeah, that's those are hard days. Today was hard for me. I've got this sinus thing that happened today and it's like, I I, I felt like I should cancel the class, but I knew I had to come in here and, and finish up, you know, finish what I started. And comedy, a book gig is the same thing for me. The exception to calling in sick in comedy, which is almost impossible to do, the exception would be where I knew I could not physically perform. Like if if my voice went out, for example, that's never happened. But there's been times where it was really close. And so I did everything I could to make sure I got through the set. I had piping hot water, a big big jug of it next to me on stage. And every 10 jokes, I'd take a little sip. And, you know, the person who hired me knew that going in and I made it through. But at any point, it could have fallen short. So with with like laryngitis or something like that, I, I may see if there's another comic friend of mine in the area that can be, and I've done this actually before with traveling. I'm coming back from somewhere like Richmond, Virginia, and I'm flying into Nashville. I'm landing at 2, but I've got a show at 8. So I always have a comic friend on standby just in case my flight gets canceled, delayed, or whatever. And I, I hook them in with the event planner, whoever booked me, so they know that's going to happen. But I've unfortunately performed uh, shows the night where both of my parents had heart attacks and I found out like four o'clock before an eight o'clock show. They both survived them, but they were in the hospital and that's all you can think about with your parents. I remember specifically uh, the the locations and the, the even the setup of those shows because everything I walked in was just magnified by, I shouldn't even be here right now, but 
I'm already in Lincoln, Nebraska. What can I possibly do? You know, so I just explained to the the person that hired me again, hey, not to weigh this down on you, but this is in the back of my mind. I'm still going to do a show for you guys, and it'll be fine. But if it seems I'm a tiny bit off, this is what's going down. Um, but it's it, there are times where you won't feel up to it. You'll be sad. You'll be distracted. But that's what separates a professional, really, from uh, somebody that's aspiring to do it. Uh, somebody that's aspiring to it has nothing, no skin in the game, so they would cancel and stay home and call in later and tell them why. But being booked and dependable is is being dependable is a big reason that they hired you, even more so than being funny sometimes. You know, they can look at your web presence. They can look at testimonies from past clients and just the, the body of work, and they know this person's going to deliver on what they hired for. But let me ask you, too, because you've, you've sang and you've played piano and stuff. What do you do to kind of turn that corner and make it happen? Honestly, I listen to comedy. I just pull up, you know, maybe last night's Tonight Show and watch Jimmy Fallon's monologue or something. I certainly don't listen to music. Um, I just do something else to kind of get my head out of it. Uh-huh. And then, um, I don't know, I feel better. I feel better about being in front of people when I feel in a better mood, when I feel more confident, I guess. Right. And do you ever feel like, I mean, it's it's a privilege to be able to perform in front of people and get paid for it too. So it's, there's always, also that always right in the back of my head, like, you know, there's guys that got to go dig a ditch yeah. and, you know, they have nothing to look forward to. And, and this, yeah. this is my part of the day that I look forward to. So that kind of gets me past it. I, I, I consider that a lot. I don't think I've ever, there's been a few times in the past of being on stage, I'm st- on stage three or four nights a week, but I try to check my attitude at the door and if I have, it feels like I'm like putting on an, a, a character, but that's all right. It, that everybody has to come in and have the, you know, have to have a good attitude and I've got to convey that. I've got to take them there. So it, I make sure that I check that at the door before I even start. Really? That's good. That any, remi- way, any way I can. Yeah. And that reminds me of, uh, Minnie Pearl's whole thing was that love the audience and they'll love you back. Yeah. And also that always remember that you're there for the audience and they're never there for you. Now, there are times when you're recording a live CD or DVD where you're hoping they're there for you too. But if you always put the mindset is that I'm here to give them a good time, it takes you out of the funk that you're in. Yeah. You know, and then usually by the end of those nights, and you probably felt this way too when you've been really sick for that hour or three hours or four hours you're playing the piano or whatever, somehow that just goes away. The adrenaline yeah, kicks adrenaline, in. And, yeah. And then 10 minutes after you're done, you came and talk. Yeah. But yeah, it's like that, that adrenaline push is sometimes what you need anyway in that situation. Yeah, totally. So the healing works. It's it's weird how that works. Yeah. You know, you're putting good things out and it comes back to you. Right. Good stuff. Uh, my name is Rachel Mayo. I had no intentions of becoming a comedian ever in my life. Um, I really just wanted to be a better speaker, but my friend was like, hey, you should take this class. And then I did. Um, and so I, I do want to be a speaker, and I know you're a speaker. And so I would like to know what kind of connections do you make between – comedy and just speaking good question and like you never intending to be a comedian i never intended to be a speaker either but in 2008 or 2009 and i may have told this story in the podcast before but i was hired to go do an hour comedy at this conference and all the budgets were being really looked hard at because of the economy crashed and all this stuff and like we we cannot write comedian on your check but we could write speaker so can you come in have a few points that some takeaway points but be funny while you're doing it and so that you know i remember specifically the guy and i had about three to six months to kind of figure it out and so i said yeah i'll do that but just so you know you and i both know if it doesn't go well you don't have to pay me anything besides travel because this is pushing me into a new area that i've thought about 
but I'm not sure how to get there. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was look at all the material that I'd written over the years. And after each joke, I just look at it and go, what is that joke also about? You know, I have a joke where I talk about my wife and I talking about Valentine's Day gifts and all these things, and it kind of backfires on me. But as a side note, that entire three-minute bit is about communication and expectations. So I made a note about that. I went through and looked at a joke about me and my kids, and it turned out that joke could also be about leadership. You know, so I started to categorize the context that speakers are used to speaking at, but also what stories I had to kind of back it up. And so I, I had a list of that, and that took me about a month really to go through and pull stuff out and then look at uh, a framework for my speech. So if you're starting from scratch and you want to be a speaker, uh, just like songwriting or even comedy, you have to kind of have a hook to make people interested in it. So what would you do to create something that would be interesting for somebody else to hire you for? So for me, my hook thing in my first speech was uh, The Andy Griffith Show. Because I also do a little Barney Fife impersonation thing. So I wrote a speech around that called The Mayberry Method. And the topics they wanted me to cover were about customer service, uh, planning, and time management. And so then I watched episode after episode of The Andy Griffith Show to find examples of where time management was an issue in that example. Or customer service was an issue in that episode. And so I started making these connections between those things and my jokes that were on the same topic. And then for me, I went into data, and then I would find... Um, you can ask your clients that you speak for what's their biggest hurdle or their biggest you know, setbacks every year and find data that's, that shows why that happens and then data to support how to get past it. And then I would sew all that together, but instead of looking at it as a one-hour speech, I had three 20-minute sections, time management, customer service. you know. And so I would see how I can write these three 20-minute pieces. And once I, once I got to that point, and literally I just stared at it for about a month, thinking I got to write this hour speech and I couldn't think of how to do it, but you know, eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so 20 minutes made sense. And so I found a way to structure that to where I let off with an example of the Andy Griffith show, some statistics, usually a mind blowing statistic. And then a question that they'd have to answer out loud. And then I would give them statistical data to back something up. And then my funny story right before a takeaway. And if you have them laughing, then you hit them with the, you have to remember this. It actually ties it together. They'll remember it that way. And so I would think about using your humor, you know, every time you write a joke, just in the, the margin, what is this also about? Where else could this fit? And you might find that you really speak a lot on all your jokes are really all about miscommunication, which could be a big subtext of a, a speech. And I guess the other thing is if you have something you're passionate about speaking already, do you? Do you have something that's in the back of your mind? Uh, yeah, um, entrepreneurship, but also I'm type 1 diabetic, so I want to speak to groups of people with chronic illnesses. Okay, so that gives you your framework right mm-hmm. there. And so you might want to call up the American Diabetes Association, find out if they hire speakers, how often, where, and you know who they've had in the past. Be, that's always a great question. Mm-hmm. Then look those people up online and see the context of their speeches and maybe use that as a loose framework for building yours. Yeah, but your personal story is going to be the key in that speech too. Mm-hmm. You know how you discovered what age you were when you discovered it. How you, you know, how that changed your perspective on your life and what maybe other people's the way they they looked at you after they found out, and then how you deal with it on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. and then some little inspirational twist there at the end to make people go, okay, we can get past this. Yeah, great. You bet. I'm Lamarco McCord. I'm a comedian. 
And in my spare time, I'm a chef at Captain D's. Sweet. <laughs> hey, um, no, my question is, like, after you've been doing stand-up for a couple of years or months or whatever, and, like, like, how can you, how do you know when to transition to, like, movies and stuff like it like if that's what you want to do so using comic stand-up as a, a jumping off place to kind of get noticed right like a platform yeah i would think if, if you if that's a goal already that you want to do film or tv work or anything on camera i would start thinking early in your comedy about writing bits that involve characters yeah so as you're telling a story you step out of your own natural voice a little bit and you bring somebody else in to show people and showcase your talent that you want to get hired for, that you can do different voices, do different impressions, different mannerisms on stage, you know, and I would get deep into it. I wouldn't just do the voice of the character. I would take on the physical presence of that character. Right. I would change my delivery style based on that character and then think about how old that character is. Well, All those different things factor into it. But what if you, the character you're trying to play? Then you ain't got to act like something. You just on stage doing your stand-up, but you you yourself are the character. Right. Well, I would say make that 190% more than it already is so that it stands out. Right. You know, make it undeniable where people walk out, and the only thing they can talk about after seeing 20 comics go up is that LaMarco guy. Like, dude, that dude was on, or that that dude was weird, or that dude had a thing. Yeah. But you you don't want it to be... I guess I wouldn't advise making it a real subtle thing. I would make it a real focus. And I, would, I wouldn't I even worry about doing stand-up in the necessary stand-up sense of set-up punchline. I would look at guys like the Wayans Brothers who did a lot of characters. Yeah. Uh, Jim Carrey and his stand-up, he did a lot of characters. Right. Look at those character comics and, and kind of look at their style and you know even maybe time out how long they spend in a character before they move on to the next one. Right. Just to kind of give you a loose framework for how you might want to build your sets. All right, then. And then I would, on top of that, record with the video every single set you do so you can start piecing together some of those characters into a little sizzle reel, a little highlight reel. Yeah. Uh, here's 30 seconds of this guy. Here's 30 seconds of that. Or if it's just you the whole time, show you in different situations. Right. Show how you respond to adversity, how you something funny, something unexpected, how you are angry so that if, if you are wanting to be on film, they can see you in these different situations and how you would – you're already giving them the script almost. Right, right. Almost almost look at it like a one-man show. I got you. I understand. I, I understand that. Hello. Who um, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm having a problem with my identity, but right now I'm Rebecca Vine, which is already a stage name. I'm not sure where it's going to go. It's just, that's the truth. Right. You never know where a vine's <laughs> going to go. just don't know. Um, which actually brings me to my question, which is about characters because that's something that I do a lot of different voices. I always have. I didn't even realize until our first class that that is something that I could use as like different voices in, you know, in comedy. So character development. Um, could you, I know you just kind of talked about it a little bit, but. But how to incorporate you, that in your stand up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I think the, the key thing, I think, Let's just say we're going to do a five-minute set so mm -hmm. we have some context to it. So I think in the first 30, 40 seconds, we want to establish your voice so that they know when you're doing somebody else's, for, for starters. Okay. So, and then I would put yourself in a situation that would naturally invite other characters to come in and out. You know, a lot of, a lot of the impressionists, they'll, you know, 
can you imagine getting into an elevator with so-and-so? So that now they've got a place where four people are and they're bouncing and then the elevator gets stuck and, you know, these different celebrities reacting to it. If you're doing voices that aren't celebrities or people in your life or family are made up, then I would look at the, a, a, a plausible situation where these people would be in the same space. And then maybe as a group, they try to find a way to get out of the situation. Okay. And so that they're, they're each chiming in with their different voices that way, but it, it doesn't seem forced, you know, and, and you as a, as your natural voice are in that room with those people. So you can also comment on those people okay. as you come in and out of their voices. Like when he said that, I was like, I couldn't believe it. And then she said, and then she comes in with that. And like, and then he said about her. And so you have this very visual thing going on. Yeah. And probably early on, I would try to keep it down to just a couple of characters in a scenario at a time. Okay. It just seems like juggling. It seems like the more balls you have in the air, the more you got to remember to bring that person back around, which you might be really gifted at already. So if you are, don't worry about it. But I would, I always like to start off in bite-sized pieces so I can accomplish it. It's an experiment. Right. And did that go well? Well, why not? Well, if you only have three moving pieces, you can just break it down to one of those three things. But if there's nine, it's going to be harder. Right. Okay. And then, uh, yeah. And then make it really clear when you move out of that bit into the next bit so that the audience doesn't expect those characters to move on with you. Okay. You know, unless you do want to bring them back in, then make it clear that you're bringing that person back in. Okay. You know, okay. it's because it, stand-ups are very visual, but also when you're doing voices, they have to visualize the people too. So just like with the Marco, I'd say, you know, embody their, their stature, their stature, you know, stature, their age, uh, and their cadence. Those are the three big things. Okay. So that way they, they stand out better. Nice. Thank you. All right. I want to see those, those characters come to life. You got another one, buddy? Yeah, I've actually got another. It's a follow-up question on the same topic with everybody and um, talking about characters. And um, one of my favorite comedians is Will Ferrell. And he has all these different characters that he's developed over the years, whether on Saturday Night Live or, or after that. And if um, somebody like myself that is going out and starting to do open mics and, you know, as myself, um, I do that for a while. And then I decide, Hey, I've, I've, I've come up with a few characters that I would literally go out and do an entire set in character. Is that something that, that people typically do? I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, if, if, if Will Ferrell went out and he didn't do. He went out to do a set, and he didn't do any of it as Will Ferrell. He did it as Ron Burgundy, you know. Or I know that he had his one stand-up special where he was George W. Bush the whole set. Um, is that something that people typically do? Is it well received? You know, what what are your? I guess what's your opinion on that? I almost want to ask the question behind the question to why uh, why you would worry if it's something that people do or not. Because, because I mean, I, th- I, I kind of know the answer, but I'm kind of curious if you know the answer of why you're, you shouldn't really worry about it if it's well received or not, because it's, it's not, nobody has done you doing a character yet. They've done their version of whatever, and it may have misfired for their lack of preparation or their lack of ability or skill or what have you. But or I guess, is that something that should, should be tried by someone who has a lot of experience behind them or someone like myself that, let's say, in four months after after doing, you know, hopefully 100 open mics, um, then go out there and try this? Or is that something that's more tested by someone who's got a lot more experience? Yeah, it could go either way. I, I would say this. I would work on 
one character at a time for a duration of time to give that character a chance to succeed before I would, like I wouldn't go to four open mics this week and do four different characters. It's just be, for me, it'd just be too much to jumble around and I probably wouldn't get really good at any of those four the first week. And then the next week I'd have to dial back in where I was with that character on Monday or what have you. So I would, I would list your characters out and then write for those characters. I would write as a stand up and keep the last high like you would for a stand up set, you know, at least shoot for four or five right now as a beginner per minute and make sure that character has good content so that you don't discard the character because it didn't work. Whereas it may have been the content that wasn't working, but I would focus on one at a time and develop that. And then if you got one where you, you know, you've got five minutes set with the guy, the character, and it's working really good. And that's all you want with that. I move out to the side and I start with the next one. And then maybe if your ultimate goal is to do a, a stand up set where for 15 minutes, you bring in three characters and they're well, def- you know, you've practiced them and now boom, they all each have their time in the spotlight. That's great. But it's it's almost like trying to run three careers right. if you're trying to do three characters a week right out of the gate. And I, I would, but you might want to try it, but I would just envision that being so hard to pull off. Like when I'm working on a new song and I go out to play it, I play it until I got it. And then I would get out the next song or I might work on a small group of songs together, but I wouldn't try to play the whole CD every time I went out because I wouldn't be able to focus enough on the little nuances of each of the individual songs. But I would try. I mean, the best thing about when you first start is you can do a million things until you find what works for you. And once once you start getting booked as a certain type of comic, then the expectations are usually for you to show up as that kind of person. So it's a little bit. It can be a little harder to bring in different characters uh, later in the game if you're going to commit to that character for a full set because they may be booked Dustin and not Jimmy the whatever or <laughs> you know whatever you have in your mind. Right. But I think it's fun, and if you fail early on and nobody knows who you are, they can't tell anybody who failed because they don't know your name. You know, right. twenty years from now, you've got this big career going. You look at what happened to Garth Brooks, right? Remember that whole Chris Gaines scenario? Which, if you unjumble the letters in Chris Gaines, it spells rich again. That's what he was trying to do: is just find another way to make money and be on more radio stations than just the country station. That it was a money grab, you know. I mean, he was. Let's be honest, you know, that's what he was trying to do. So, but he was too far into Garth Brooks for people to even accept that secondary character. Right. Even though, you know, other country guys kind of did that, you know, Lonesome Drifter and different things that spawn off of the guy. But he was too knee deep into it. Early on, he could have maybe paralleled career for a while and done both of them. So the, the talent was there on both, but the acceptance wasn't. But now everybody could say, look at this idiot Garth Brooks trying this other thing. Whereas early on, Nobody even remembers his name after a set. So the, the really cool thing now is just you can do whatever you want. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you can go back the next week and try something different and just find out what you think you might want to be on stage will probably be different than what you end up being on stage. Like when I first started, I thought I'm going to be like Steve Martin. Like I just want to do props and crazy stuff and really bizarre. And that's not even close to what I do now. Or even when I first started, like after three or four times, I'm like, that's Steve Martin. That's not me. And he's brilliant. And, you know, I went to school in Kentucky. So you can do what you can do, right? So you'll evolve into something that works for you. But experiment a lot early. That's the fun of it. Uh, even now at open mics, I, I look at each joke as an experiment. And if it works, great. If not, I know to go fix it. But uh, don't don't get paralyzed in the fear of should I do it. Just do it. It'll make for some great stories.
Okay, so I've gone to my first arena comedy show this past week. Jim Gaffigan? And, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've been to a lot of uh, smaller clubs, a lot of those shows, and of course I've watched a lot of specials and all that. Um, and I've noticed some comedians more than others at smaller shows um, workshop some some of their new material. And I was I was waiting to see if Jim was going to do that, and he did. There was a couple of things he was kind of like working out, see if he got to a punchline, and he didn't. He actually said that. He yeah. said, okay, I don't have a punchline for that. And it was funny because it's yeah. Jim Gaffigan. But I guess my question is is, is like a two-part. Um, I, I hear a lot of comedians that live in New York and L.A. and maybe Chicago that can, you know, step on stage for five minutes and maybe work out some new material. Do you have that kind of reception here? Or are there, you know, like local clubs that might know you well enough to be able to do that? Do you find that with a lot of other comedians who maybe aren't as well-known? that might be able to get a small set to work stuff out? And if not, how do you workshop some of those jokes that you haven't quite fleshed out yet? Sure. So uh, it's easier to get sets to experiment in a, in a full-time club when you've done it for a long time. And that, you know, probably when you've been featuring there for a while or longer, you can get in a set and go, Hey, I mean, this stuff's going to be horrible. I'm just trying it out. And they'll put you in a show where that's okay. Like a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Sunday night, or they'll let you do a, they might let you MC that week, so you can work on new material in the MC spot, and then um, that's a good way to workshop it. If uh, I always think anywhere outside the comedy club, the comedy club is really where the material should be tight, unless it's billed as an open mic night or these guys are trying new material night. The audience is expecting a, a quality product, you know. But if you have the relationship with the club owner, you can let them know, hey, this I'll start strong and I'll end strong, but there's gonna be a lot of weird stuff in the middle, and they're usually cool with it because you've built that. Yeah. Uh, you know, camaraderie between them and that reputation. But at open mics, you know, unless they're having you, even if they're having you close out the open mic, 15 comics, and they're going to give you a 15 or 20 minute spot at the end, they probably want you to close strong, but it's also an unpaid spot. And so I always put untested and unpaid in the same place mm-hmm. and well-tested and well-paid in the same place. And occasionally in a, in a, even a, a full price corporate event or whatever I'm doing, there's a, middle part of my show where I allow myself to experiment a little bit okay. and so I know I can recover from it you know they, they've liked me for 20 minutes I've got 30 more minutes plus but for five minutes here I might just try out this new section yeah. of material okay. and if it doesn't go good you can work in those save they call them save lines yeah like uh, oh when you guys don't laugh when you don't like something you don't mess around or you know when you don't like something you really don't like something or you can sniff out a new joke a mile away and sure. that kind of brings the crowd back into it like okay he was trying something new that's why it didn't work okay now, Good. let me ask you again as a, as a songwriter, too, because there's times where you're expected to go out and boom, deliver. Yeah. And then there's also songwriting open mics all over town, too. Yeah. And I heard you guys loosely talking about it before class started, but when you're trying to add a new song at an open mic, and maybe they give you a three-song spot or something, I don't, I don't know how the songwriter open mic works. Right. But say they give you 15 minutes or mm-hmm. what have you. Will you lead off with a new song? Will you put it second? Will you try three new songs? What's, well, which I guess every goal is different for each time out, but what's the what's the common thing? I guess it depends on how long I get, how many songs I get. Um, but I try to just I try to hit it out of the park right out of the gate. Try the stuff in the middle, and then if it doesn't work, pick up the pace. Because I, you know, I I want to be the the you know um, um, bleeding heart songwriter and have all these depressing songs and stuff. But I also want to entertain. I know that's also my job. So. I got to 
be careful about where I place the ones that I'm, I'm not quite sure if they're going to resonate or not. Right. And I can only presume that comedy has to work the same way. Yeah. We talked a little bit tonight about structuring a set, but it is a lot like structuring like a, you go see Rolling Stones and like they've got four decades of songs to pull from. Yeah. But they're still going to do a two and a half hour show and it has to have a flow to it. Yeah. But, you know, when I saw them here in Nashville, uh, they brought out, I think it was Brad Paisley, like an hour into it. They didn't start the show with Brad Paisley because that was, wasn't going to set the tone for their show. They came out and nailed some hits. Right. And they played a couple of songs from their individual albums in there that were cool little departures. But then they, man, when they came out to finish up, they hit it hard, you know. So with with comedy, the only time I don't start off with a tried and true new joke is when I'm trying to write some new opening jokes. Which last year, that was my goal for a good chunk of the year is to write three or four new opening bits because people typically remember the opening mm-hmm. and your closing. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing repeat gigs for some of these groups, I knew that the first thing they sometimes the event planner or the booker they're in the room for the first five minutes of your set and the last five. So I wanted to make sure they at least saw something different, even though I had plenty of new material in the middle. My opener hadn't changed in a while, and so that that was a a time to work on that. Gotcha. So, yeah. but I worked on those in open mic situations and then eased them into a real show to make sure they worked in a real, I hate to say a real crowd or a real environment, but an open mic is a different ball game. Yeah. The reception and the response is just, it can be 50 other comics and they hate you for, you know, being in front of them and they got to stick around till midnight or whatever. Yeah. But I would fold it into the new show and see how it worked and, and kind of work it in that way. Okay. But there is that kind of, experimental thing you know and also with you like i probably wouldn't start on my most challenging or depressing story or joke (laughs) to lead off because you got to meet him somewhere yeah so like if you have a really sad song and and that's the one you want to learn and learn how to sing it the best do you sometimes lead off with it anyway because you need to see how that song responds with an unwarmed up audience? I certainly have. Yeah, I certainly have done something cold like that where, you know, I don't know how it's going to go. I like it, but that doesn't matter. And, you know, there have been times where it really goes over well. And sometimes I was like, well, I'll just hide that in my record somewhere if yeah. I decide to record it. But, and sometimes it takes longer to catch on too. So that's where I, I, I can't quite, you know, decipher the difference between jokes and songs because while there are a lot of similarities, there are still a whole lot of things that I still haven't gathered you know uh-huh. the difference between and, and which one which one's going to work better here or you know that's good let me ask you one more song question then <laughs> yeah just um from the the vocal standpoint of it in a short set three song set and you've got a song where there's some really vocal gymnastics going on and i haven't seen you so i don't know how what your range is oh, like I'm or, terrible terrible but <laughs> now i'm sure you're good because you're full-time right but the uh you can only warm up so much in the back or off stage or outside yeah. or before you come in and, and do that song that's going to take you into some higher spots yeah. or whatever. What's I would assume that you'd put that second or third in the set so you've got a little bit of time on the mic. But. Yeah, totally. Well, like Paul McCartney says, he never warms up. I don't believe him. He's 150 years old now. But um, I, if it's my own show and I have an hour on stage as my songs, I'll warm up. I'll, I'll make sure that I go through a few songs that I'm sure – you do too. But if I'm doing just a, a you know, a three hour, four hour gig of all covers, I don't care too. Because if, I'm not going to try to get really brave with the stuff that's kind of more challenging uh-huh. until maybe later on. Or I might even change the key or something just so I don't make a, a fool of myself. Right. 
But uh, yeah, the more challenging stuff, I kind of save to where I feel like I, I can nail this. <laughs> um, dynamics. So like in Nashville, we've got songwriter rounds. So that's when like songwriters will do, you know, a song like everyone does one song. That's obviously not a comedy thing that, that is done. However, within that round, a technique that we use is that I learned when I first moved here is if the person before you has just done a, you know, slit your wrist kind of song, then you doesn't matter what you, you had were planned, gonna, what you were planning. Yeah. You do your upbeat to bring it back. huh? And uh, I mean, it's like a rookie mistake. And people do it. I mean, amazing people do it still where I'll be watching one and they're like, you know, I've got a song, <laughs> you know, <that's laughs> that reminded like, me of how my dog died. Yeah. And like, let me play. Let's just keep the tears coming. And it's like, please don't <laughs> like, please don't do that. And the same thing if somebody's just done a really upbeat number, you know, that you would do the opposite. So I guess my there's dynamics. There's all that. I mean, if people are not responding well, you can quite like if people are getting really loud like you get you get quieter you right know? right and you just i mean is that the same in comedy yeah that's a really and that's a technique that you have to trust that will work that takes a little uh getting used to but the tennessee especially when you first start you're playing bar gigs and the the pool tables are still going on they're still playing the ball game in the background on the big screen tv so when they get loud you try to get louder but yeah as you progress and you've got more trust in your skills getting softer will bring more attention to the microphone than getting louder or not talking at all for a couple of seconds until people turn their head like Did the comedian just quit. And then you got your attention again. Yeah. Um, and the other thing too, that's interesting, kind of like here we talking about the different downbeat song than the upbeat song. If the comic before you and say I'm a high energy guy and the comic before me is really higher energy. Sometimes the best thing for me to do is start my show a lot slower and build that okay. intensity back up as opposed to trying to meet their intensity and carrying it on for another hour if the crowd's been sitting there for 30 minutes, you know. And okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Do you, is it a blank slate or do you kind of carry off of You, you should, hour? yeah. I mean, some comics, well, you know, well-rounded headliners, if the comic before them, and typically the feature act will destroy at a comedy club, uh, it's a sweet spot. There's no check drop. There's no orders being taken for 25 minutes. It's pure focus on a comedian. Then you bring out the next guy and half the people went to the bathroom and the opening three minutes of the headliner is like people coming back to sit down. So uh, once you trust that you can get where you're going to get, bringing it down to almost zero and building it back up okay. Is, is okay. Yeah. It, but you have to trust. The thing is, is you have to trust yourself. It's there, but you have to give it time to happen. And yeah. after 30 seconds, you might feel like it's not going to happen. You get back in that really quick draw McGraw mode and the crowds just can't physically be in that place for an hour and a half yeah. maybe okay all right we're gonna wrap it up here well i hope you enjoyed that another fun episode always great to be around the energy and the enthusiasm of new students and i thought they brought some very unique questions this time a lot of questions we hadn't had before so i thought i'd share that with you guys out there listening to the podcast however you're listening to it we're on iHeartRadio, itunes stitcher you name it we are there Feel free to share our podcast with your friends. Help us grow a little bit more so we can reach more people and get the good work done that we're trying to do. Hey, speaking of good work, somebody did a great job at leaving an iTunes review. This one came in on August 13th. Essential for any comedian who wants to get better. Five stars. This podcast is incredible. 
I'm a Kansas City comedian. I've been doing stand-up for five years. I'm very big on constant improvement. School of Laughs is one of the best things I've found in regards to improving my understanding of what to do to change my career for the better. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Kansas City comedian, for the big five-star review. Always fired up to get the reviews, and it uh, kind of keeps me going as I sit here in my office sometimes with dead silence editing these things together. Hey, if you're in the Nashville area, you want to come out and check a live comedy class. I've got the performance class coming up on September 6th, 13th, and 20th. Those are Tuesdays. That'll be in Nashville from 6 to 8 p.m., and I've got two spots left. If you're interested in joining in, uh, shoot me an email, schooloflaughs at gmail.com, and I'll get you in there. That's it for today, guys. You guys have been great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the iTunes reviews. And I look forward to speaking with you next week where we get into uh, throwing out some new premises, me and a couple other comedians, that we'll follow up with the following week to see how those premises played out once we got them on stage. Thanks again. Be safe. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.